Imagine the following world. There are some people with red-green colorblindness, just like in our world, but for some reason, they've gotten together and taken over a country. So the leadership is composed almost entirely of people with red-green colorblindness, with a few chosen deputies who can still see color, but they can get away with pretending that they can't see it. And from on high comes the stated or unstated dictate that it is now against the law to perceive the difference between red and green. So how would this society look? Well, there would be armed guards patrolling the orchards, the fields, and the farmers and just the regular people picking fruit or vegetables wouldn't be able to tell, or, or they would be able to tell when fruit are ripening, but they would not be able to do anything about it without being punished, perhaps being thrown in prison, tortured, or killed. So, what would happen in such a society, given that those conditions? Well, people would have to pretend that they couldn't see red or green. And maybe on a, an unannounced visit from the security personnel during dinner, they would be forced to display a selection of ripe and unripe fruit and vegetables and to eat them with no visual sign that they are unpleased with the taste of the food they are eating. Now, this is how Lobachevsky, Andrew Lobachevsky, in his book Political Ponderology, introduces one of his chapters on normal people under pathocratic rule. Because there is a, an analogy to be made with what he calls pathocracy. He makes the comparison between psychopaths and people with red-green colorblindness, not because of any um, essential features that they, say, that they have in common, but because in the same way that people with colorblindness can't perceive the distinction between, say, red and green, psychopaths can't see certain emotions. They can't feel them. They can't, they can't perceive the certain depths of human interactions and feelings. And in a pathocracy, when such individuals gain power over the majority of people who can feel those distinctions and recognize them, what they essentially do is make those feelings illegal. Um, or at least, like, if not explicitly illegal, like there's no law on the books, for instance, saying you can't express certain emotions. They are signals, that they're like a target on your head. If you were to display certain emotions, they would target you as a, a potential dissident or threat to the system. So, in the same story, Lobachevsky describes how, well, what happens when the um, the minion, you know, the security personnel leaves your house. Well, people would naturally get rid of the green tomatoes and just make a great salad and enjoy it. They might not say anything about it, but everyone gives a knowing look and they continue on with dinner. And that is kind of a view into life under a totalitarian pathocracy, where the people in that society are forced to behave in these artificial, forced ways and everyone kind of knows on some instinctive level what's going on, um, realizes that there are certain things that are not allowed, and that there is a certain front that you have to put up, like a certain mask that you have to wear in your dealings with most people, well, with most people, because you'll never be sure who among that group of people will be an informer or someone um, like within the party, someone who will out you and keep an eye on you as a potential uh, danger or a potential troublemaker. 
so the purpose of this chapter is basically to focus in on what the experience of people is under such a system. This is The Truth Perspective. I am your host today, Harrison Cayley. Joining me is Alan Martin. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. And the reason, so the reason he's doing this is because in the previous sections of the book, he's described all of these historical and psychological processes behind the creation of a system of government, which he calls a pathocracy. The example he's going off of is the USSR and the kind of Eastern Bloc communist countries. So this chapter looks at the dynamics of how this system affects normal people, the different kind of reactions and the different kind of things playing themselves out kind of in individuals, families, and society in general. So one of the first points he makes is that just like the red-green colorblind people in the the little um, kind of thought experiment story that he gives, these people in power have a particular agenda. So the red-green colorblind people might have the agenda to make people stop perceiving the difference. But just like you can't force a person to stop distinguishing between red and green because the people will, you know, a person will just naturally see red and green. They can pretend not to, um, but it'll always be there. It'll, it's inescapable. Um, it's unchangeable. In the same way, the dictates, the psychological dictates of a totalitarian system do not have the effect that the pathocrats desire. And this leads to various um, unforeseen um, consequences for both society and for the pathocrats themselves. So, for instance, they don't realize that because their vision of transforming humanity into their image is impossible, that there will be backlash, for instance. And that's what often happens. Like, there's the... Um, which country, do you remember, was Ceausescu the leader of? That's so funny, because I, I was just thinking about Ceausescu. Yeah. He was Romanian. Romanian. And uh, I have a little a little story to tell. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, because it, it kind of illustrates this quite well, I think. Um, I had a friend who lived in under Ceausescu's rule, uh, in Romania, this was about uh, 30 or 40 years ago. And uh, what would happen was he would go on these photo ops around the country um, where people would be convened to uh, cheer his name and, and give him adulation uh, when he was pretty much reviled and hated among most people because yeah. he was such a, a greedy uh, bastard, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Poroshenko comes to mind as a good kind of current day um, comparison. But anyway, uh, what would happen was, and, and I think she had witnessed this, uh, she was in the market one day and a bunch of workers came around a particular stall and started to populate it with all kinds of meats and, uh, and products that were not normally available for the public. So uh, she asked what was going on uh, my friend did, and she was told that Ceausescu was going to be arriving soon for a photo opportunity mm -hmm. where he can stand in front of this very well-populated uh, food stand that, that had all of these wonderful meats and salamis and various things that uh, were just never there or available to people. And then, uh, you know, the, the TV crew could film him saying, look, you know, look how wonderful I am. Look, what I provide for you. Anyway, it just struck me as a, a particularly uh, 
uh, interesting little anecdotal. It's something you just, it's so blatantly obvious and mm -hmm. egregious. You, you, you wouldn't realize that, that people behave that way, that yeah. leaders behave that way, unless you had heard about something like this firsthand. Yeah, it's almost hard to believe until you experience it for yourself. Yes. You know, it sounds so over the top. Um, of course, you know, not, uh, not to anyone that's really like politically informed because I mean, we know that that stuff like that happens even in, um, in the West, you know, like paying for a crowd to appear at your rally or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. you know, similar things happen. But when I hear examples like that from, uh, from like the communist countries, they're like so over the top and so like blatantly manipulative that it, it's just, it's kind of the same dynamic, but on a whole, on a whole other level, right. like they're literally putting on a complete fiction. It's a, it's a theater play like, um, uh, from top to bottom it's, and it's quite remarkable, but the, uh, so do you know the story of, um, you know, his fall from grace when, the, when the, when the communism fell, he was, he was basically torn apart. He, he was, was brutally shot he was taken out yep. back and, and shot along with his wife mm -hmm. who was uh, a real piece of work too apparently yeah and uh just just to add on to something that this was a country uh basically got a lot of support uh from soviet russia at the time uh i forget what it's called but there was a their kind of version of the, the this kind of legislative white house that they were creating of this gigantic structure that had gold leaf and marble floors and chandelier that uh, Elena Ceausescu had requested be, you know, rebuilt and redesigned several times at the expense of what was basically a very poor country mm -hmm. uh, and cost billions to produce and was larger than the Pentagon. And I, I visited this place uh, many years ago uh, with my family because my father is Romanian and uh, it was kind of shocking because it's completely unused. At least it was over 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So just an example of the incredible amount of waste uh, also that, uh, that comes at the expense of a, uh, a public that's being led by a pathological leader yeah. under, under such a, um, ideology or government. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, the point that Lobachevsky is making right in the beginning of the chapter is that guys like Ceausescu, that, uh, you know, pathological people in power, they don't realize, they can't, they can't seem to foresee the inevitable, um, you know, negative consequences to themselves um, that, that will result from the very policies that they're putting forward, mm -hmm. that they will literally be lynched um, given the opportunity because they will never be able to you know, mind control the people to, to brainwash them to the extent where they will accept that accept this form of rule, that it is just so foreign to most people and so oppressive that, um, well, not only that, it is so like just anti-human that you, you can't transform a population, uh, you know, into your image and inevitably you will fall either at the hands of some, you know, backstabbing competitor within the party or from the people themselves when there's a, a, a revolution um, against the, the, the form of government. And um, just to give an idea of the way this plays out, you know, what the, what the actual, like, so-called policies are, you know, I'm not, I, I don't even think that's the right word. It's just, um, um, it's like a force of nature. It's just uh, techniques and, um, like, routine behaviors so, like, this would be methods of manipulation and terror. Um, so, torture, you know, arbitrary arrests, 
um, all of the all of the things that you associate with a a tyrannical you know totalitarian regime mm -hmm. like the, the the most horrible things you can think of like this is the kind of like a gulag archipelago type stuff that you'll read in you know Solzhenitsyn's work mm -hmm. um, the kind of stuff that is just designed to break your soul and to to utterly destroy you um, and some people do get destroyed like um, of course killed um, psychosis you know people will go people will go mad but on on the whole like a society they will never actually become what psychopaths want psychopaths have this kind of arrogance that um it's just kind of self-evident self-evident to them that they'll be able to just make to just bring people around to their point of view mm -hmm. right well no this is just the way things are and you're going to accept it and they don't um just like you know psychopaths can't foresee very well into the future they can't project into the future to to see the the consequences of their actions um, or they just don't care. They they don't they don't they can't see. Well, by their very nature, because they have this kind of colorblindness, because they've got a deficiency in their emotional, like instinctive, like uh, like basic psychology, they can't see things from the perspective of a normal person. A normal person can come to at least understand where the psychopath is coming from. Like by kind of like a, a method of by a method of subtraction, you like remove everything that kind of like makes you distinctly human, mm -hmm. and then just kind of project that onto the psychopath, and you can get some idea of what they're like. Um, it's still very you know it's still difficult, and a lot of people have trouble um, even contemplating that, but it's at least possible. Um, but it doesn't work in the reverse. So psychopaths can't understand a normal person; they can't comprehend the like range of emotions and. Um, uh, well, emotions, values, just patterns of thinking, feeling, and behaving that normal people do. Um, in fact, they do have a kind of, uh, kind of like a bizarro psychological knowledge of other people, but it's kind of like just a, a behaviorist kind of observational knowledge of other people. Oh, this happens and then that happens. You do this to them and they do that. Mm -hmm. But they don't really understand how or why that works or what's going on like in the in the people's minds. It's kind of just a, they're very... They're very expert at at picking up on people's weaknesses, but they don't really comprehend the emotion that's going on there. So, like like Robert Hare in his book Without Conscience observes, you know, if you ask them, oh, well, you know, have you ever experienced love before, or something like that, and he says, oh yeah, sure, but the when you get into the details, like love is just like uh, sexual pleasure, or if they say, oh, will you ever get afraid, and it's, and it's like, oh yeah, it's like that's when my heart's beating really fast when I'm like, you know running away from the cops or, you know, like slit, like sticking a knife in some other person. It's just an adrenaline rush. Mm -hmm. um, they don't actually understand what fear is. They can see fear on a person's face, but it's just a strange facial expression. And like, so, so like for a psychopath looking at a, a normal person, like let's say there's like a, um, you know, they're robbing them on the street or something. You know, they'll see the reactions. They'll see like the, the, the startle response and then they'll like the kind of freeze response and they'll see their eyes open up wide, and it's just this weird observation that they're making. They're kind of like a they're kind of like a, a strange scientist, like observing some foreign like uh, life form. And they say, "Okay, well that's weird. Okay, so if I approach a person like this, they stop and their eyes get wide, and they kind of lose the ability to speak coherently, and they're more likely to give me stuff, and I can make them do things in this state." Right? They don't understand what the actual emotion that the person's going through is they just kind of have this um, stimulus response kind of understanding of the way things work mm -hmm. 
And this plays out on a macro-social level when um, a group of psychopaths gains control of a, of a country. Well, b before you get to that, Harrison, I'd just like to get back to something you said a moment ago, and that was that um, normal people uh, generally typically have a very difficult time uh, understanding or realizing what it is that's happened to them when they've been victimized by mm -hmm. a psychopath. Mm -hmm. That if, if there's nothing in their experience uh, to explain that these people exist as a certain percentage of the population, that they have these effects on other people, uh, that we can look at certain examples in A, B, or C, or C person, for instance, that uh, the, the person, the person's thinking, the person's being will be, um, they're just left much more vulnerable to, to the predations of a psychopath. Mm -hmm. So uh, like one of the, the big valuable uh, takeaways from this particular chapter is Lobachevsky saying that people need to, in a, in a way, immunize themselves mm -hmm. uh, with the knowledge that these people exist um, so that they have some measure of ability to act and think when they would otherwise be kind of stripped of those things um, by, by people who behave pathologically. Mm -hmm. And this can be in a, on an individual basis or, you know, like you were getting to, on a macro-social basis. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so Lobachevsky describes this as a kind of naivete. And what he says about Western psychotherapists in particular is, you know, at least when he was writing this decades ago, uh, that, that they generally didn't have a good grasp on uh, the way that psychopaths make people feel mm -hmm. and, and, and the types of things that they do to them. So uh, where, where he, he had a lot of experience with it, especially as he was persecuted by the, by the government police and, and, um, and tried to bring out this information you know, during his career, uh, and they were on to him, uh, you know, he was jailed, abused, uh, tortured on, on some occasions, and he had eventually built a kind of strength once he was able to understand exactly what it was he was dealing with. Now, maybe from, you know, our day-to-day -day lives, we don't have that much experience uh, directly being impacted uh, by, by people of a pathological nature. Uh, some of us do. Some of us have had um, connections to people on a, on a milder level. Uh, but the way things are going, um, the way the police state has evolved uh, over these past many years since 9-11, the way that new policies have been uh, coming into effect that are directly as a result of, of the pathocracy um, that, that's, that's been growing in the West uh, we are in one way or, or some form uh, vulnerable and, uh, and subject to pathological victimization. Mm -hmm. So um, that's his point. We don't want to be caught unawares. We want to have some awareness of things uh, as they happen, um, some insight into ourselves and our own responses and our own reactions so that we can mitigate uh, whatever affects uh, may be in store. Mm -hmm. Well, I just say I want to give my perspective on something you said there. I don't think we're living in a pathocracy, or there's even a path pathocracy developing. I think that the, our society 
in the West and the like the U.S. particular is very sick. Um, we have a different type of disease, and that would be the the kind of um, hysterical disease that Lobachevsky talks about in an earlier chapter, which makes us vulnerable to a pathocracy. Because if we were living in a pathocracy, we wouldn't we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Um, we would be we would well we just wouldn't. And chances are that either you or me or someone in our immediate circle of friends would be, would have been arrested probably multiple times. Multiple people in our circle of friends would have already been arrested multiple times, mm-hmm. interrogated, um, fault made with false accusations made against us for you know some kind of political crime or some kind of other crime that's just um, tagged onto us just to give them ex- an excuse to torture us. Like that's what it's like living under uh, an actual pathocracy. You know that, that's kind of like why. When I use an example of a modern pathocracy, I use ISIS because that's essentially what, um, you know, Syria, the areas in Syria and Iraq were like, um, and still are for the, you know, tiny pockets of places where ISIS still has uh, some kind of influence. Same with uh, Al-Qaeda, you know, Al-Nusra, Harir, Al-Sham, Fatah, or whatever their name is, HST, HTS. Um, and so, but the, but the rest of your point is, is accurate that what Lobachevsky is basically saying in this chapter, and we'll get into the details, is that over a period of like decades, like 10 to 20 years in a system like this, people naturally develop a kind of immunity and adaptation. But in a later chapter, he basically says, uh, gives the kind of uh, prescription for societies who aren't pathocracy, but who, who aren't pathocracies, but who are at risk of becoming pathocracies, that these same principles need to be applied to prevent it from happening. Because once it, once it starts developing and once it actually happens, you're kind of trapped. Like there's, there's nothing you can really do at that point. It's like, um, you know, you find yourself in Nazi Germany and it's like, well, what can you do now? What, what are you, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to start a little protest movement? Are you going to try to take over the government? Well, you know, there were some people that tried essentially those things in Nazi Germany, right? And in the Soviet Union, and look what happened to them. You know, they were destroyed. And at that point, you've just it's just a matter of time before um, these processes, which Lobachevsky lays out, lays out um, take their course, and society kind of, well, it gains a, a solidarity, um, a solidarity of the majority of people that are against the system of government. And, that, and at, that, at that point change is possible and that's why it's so important to put these things into practice now mm-hmm. is to prevent that situation from happening because right. it's like you know you know wh- wh- um what are you going to do if well if you don't do anything right now then it's going to be decades before you know you see the light at the end of the tunnel i it's think that's like, what i was trying yeah. to say basically that that there's so many pieces in place that that yeah. are um either pat you know, quasi pathocratic or well on their way yeah. that it's like all of the, all of the pieces are being prepared. All the ducks are getting uh, put in a row. Mm-hmm. And at some point it, it, it just seems almost inevitable to me that um, it, it'll be full blown. Yeah. But yeah, uh, obviously we don't have the Stasi like organization yet. Uh, that, that would be that, that rigorous well, with but, us. But like uh, now I'll take, now I'll affirm your point of view. I think there are, organizations and institutions like that mm-hmm. they're just they just can't operate and don't operate on the scale that they would in a full-blown pathocracy mm-hmm. so like i think that um um like there are elements of the cia for instance that behave exactly like um you know some kind of communist dictatorship secret service 
um, they do the same things. You know, they kidnap, they torture, um, they assume your guilt before uh, any trial, and they just get, torture you for the information that will confirm your guilt. Like it's, they use Soviet torture tactics, mm-hmm. and, um, and and so, but it happens on a relatively small scale. Like they're not going around doing that you know, in every city and every town in a, in the United States to the point, like where I said, where you know someone who's, well, you know, in multiple people who have been arrested multiple times and had these things done to them. And, uh, you know, so you, you, where you fear, where you, when you walk down the street, um, you don't know if you're going to be, you know, just taken to the next, to, to the police department or to a, you know, a, a new, you know, Homeland Security det- detention center for a few days or a few weeks or a few months. And, uh, you know, you don't know when you're going to get out and what's going to happen to you. And chances are you're going to be tortured, you know, that kind of thing. But like you said, the, there are, the things are in place and the trends are there. And, um, and well, I think that, that just leads me to another point that, um, kind of like a, an overall, an overarching observation on all these phenomena that comes out of reading this book is that all these phenomena are always present everywhere. I think that's, that's one of the big takeaway points is that these, like, uh, all these phenomena are there in waiting or active at any given point in any given country because, uh, like Lobachevsky says, that this comes back to the statistical thing, right? Um, it goes both ways. Like, on the one hand, he points out that for people who have been exposed to a pathological person, um, either in their personal life or on a macrosocial, like, political level, just providing them with accurate statistics and uh, information on the nature of psychopathology has a kind of curative effect, a psychotherapeutic effect. Right. It's like, it, it kind of like, oh, wow, that's the way it is. Uh, and it just that has a, a cleansing effect on like the psyche. But on the other hand, um, like that small percentage is always present everywhere to, to a greater or lesser degree in different cultures. Mm-hmm. And so you will find these, same, these exact same dynamics in, uh, in pockets and, um, you know, distributed throughout any given country. So you, I mean, that's why um, we tend to see it, like in the West, we tend to see it just in the, in the, um, in the sphere of crime and criminals, right? So we'll see, that, that's why we're so fascinated with serial killers and, you know, true crime and uh, the mafia and drug lords and all that kind of stuff. That's where it's most obvious to us. What's really, um, what's really kind of disturbing to most people is when they realize that, you know, inst- that there are institutions like the CIA that engage in the same behaviors mm-hmm. and that are often indistinguishable from the very criminals, that, you know, that people are so fascinated with. Um, that's, a, that's a real shock. And just to, to, for, you know, anyone listening who, to whom that might be a shocking statement, I just recommend reading a recent book um, by two guys. I can't remember their first names, but they're Duffy and Nova, Nova, uh, Nosov, no, crap, I can't remember his last name, Novachelsky or something like that. And the book is called The Watchdogs Didn't Bark. It's all about the CIA, NSA, FBI um, in the lead up to 9-11 and their you know, so-called intelligence failures. And then the, how the very people responsible for these so-called intelligence failures, um, like specifically Alfreda Bukowski and Rich Blee um, at the you know, Al-Qaeda Center in the CIA, Alex Station, how these same individuals and the, and the, the people in this station went on to be responsible for like uh, the CIA torture program, the rendition program, targeted assassinations. And when you read about the stuff that they were actually doing, um, it's quite horrifying, actually, mm-hmm. to, to actually see. And this is just what's publicly available, what's come out. And it's pretty horrifying. 
Well, just along those same lines, uh, we did an interview with an author a few years ago uh, who had written a book called uh, CIA as Organized Crime. Mm -hmm. Doug Valentine. Doug Valentine, thank you. And um, his point was that, you know, what the CIA was doing in Vietnam and other uh, East Asian countries in the 60s was a kind of a uh, a preparation, uh, a... Um, uh, a kind of a stage rehearsal for a lot of the types of things we are seeing today in the Middle East and other places. Mm -hmm. uh, and he makes a very compelling argument. But anyway, um, yeah, you wanted to... Sure, yeah, we'll go on a bit. Well, first, I just wanted to read that paragraph that you alluded to about Western psychologists or psychiatrists, mm -hmm. and then an another one on Western critics of um, like Soviet uh, pathocracy. So the pathocratic world, the world of pathological egotism and terror, is so difficult to understand for people raised outside the scope of this phenomenon that they often manifest childlike naivete, even if they have studied psychopathology and are psychologists by profession. There are no real data in their behavior, advice, rebukes, and psychotherapy. That explains why their efforts are boring and hurtful and frequently come to naught. Their egotism transforms their goodwill into bad results. And then on the next page, if a person with a normal instinctive substratum and basic intelligence has already heard and read about such a system of ruthless autocratic rule, quote, based on a fanatical ideology, end quote, he feels he has already formed an opinion on the subject. However, direct confrontation with the phenomenon will inevitably produce the, uh, produce in him the feeling of intellectual helplessness. All his prior imaginings prove to be virtually useless. They explain next to nothing. This provokes a nagging sensation that he and the society in which he was educated were quite naive. So Lobachevsky at various points is quite critical of the um, Western anti-communist -prop anti propaganda. Not because he's pro-communist, but because the, the propaganda is so wrong wrong-headed and misguided mm -hmm. it's aiming at the wrong target and is therefore totally ineffective so the like maybe to make an analogy this would be like the equivalent of some you know western expert on like uh, jihadism for instance and there's a lot of these guys um um you know usually they they write op-eds and stuff for for major publications and they're like they're experts right they know what's going on they know all about the ideology they know all, everything that's going everything all the features of like isis and what was going on there but if you were to throw one of these people down on the ground in, you know, ISIS-occupied territory, this would be the response. They would feel completely helpless and uh, like they actually knew nothing. Like they, nothing would prepare them for what they saw. Like the, even if they know all the things going on, mm -hmm. to actually be in the situation is a totally different experience. And um, this is because, like, uh, like you were saying earlier a bit, Ilan, that some people do have do have the preparation for this kind of experience. Maybe they've had a personal interaction with just a you know a full blown psychopath who has like terrorized their life. So they've kind of they they've got a uh, you know a dose of the the nasty medicine. They know what it tastes like mm -hmm. and they can recognize it. And these people actually play a role in a pathocracy, an important role for normal people, normal society. But for someone who hasn't really experienced that level of malevolence in their personal life. When you first experience it, it uh, like Jordan Peterson points out in several of his talks, that experience produces PTSD. Like uh, Lobachevsky calls it, uh, like neuro neurosis and like psychophysiological shock symptoms. Basically, like it 
put, sends you into like a, a short-term catatonia. Like you, you, it actually really messes up your brain and the, the way you think and feel. Um, he gives some kind of, some of the um, like symptoms of that is that you, your emotions become kind of numbed. You, you, you go in a state of shock Mm-hmm. And um, and your emotions kind of get uh, get numb. Well, I said they get numbed, but then they leak out in like um, um, inappropriate ways and at inappropriate moments. And sometimes this is even worse for the person involved because like they might um, they might be you know shocked into a sense of kind of not necessarily complacency but um, um, submission. But then at the most inopportune time, they will choose to express their displeasure with the authorities. Which just gets them arrested, tortured, and maybe killed. So they're almost authors of their own destruction, um, because without the real understanding of what's going on and without the control over their emotions, which mm-hmm. are the result of their encounter, uh, their you know post-traumatic encounter with, uh, or the, their encounter with malevolence that leads to PTSD, they have no control over their their reactions and no real understanding of the situation. It leads that you know it just leads to more disaster, and so that's what it's like for people in you know in the West. Who have relatively decent lives, um, uno- uh, unaware of and you know, um, and not having experienced these types of things, thrown in the middle of it, it it's like it's a it is a shock yeah. to actually experience it. It's something completely outside your your realm of experience. Yeah, and uh, the thing is, I mean, Lobachevsky is not saying. Um, understand that psychopaths exist and and you'll be okay you know period uh he he's advocating for processing this information um and putting out more information that would help someone to uh to incorporate it to integrate it into their being so that it's not you know like you were saying harrison it's not just this Mm -hmm. this kind of flat two-dimensional intellectualized uh understanding of that psychopaths exist, that, that there's, that there's something in the process of, of gaining this information that would add to us in a way that, um, that is almost, uh, well, it's invaluable in a way, but it would be, uh, it, it, it would inform our responses and our thinking in situations that, uh, that called for it. Mm. Um, and I wanted to read something that, that he had written on the subject of, uh, the psychological terror that um, psychopaths induce. He writes, the methods of psychological terror, that specific pathocratic art, the techniques of pathological arrogance and the striding roughshod into other people's souls initially have such traumatic effects that people are deprived of their capacity for purposeful reaction. I have already adduced the psychophysiological aspects of such states. 10 or 20 years later, analogous behavior is already recognized as well-known buffoonery and does not deprive the victim of his ability to think and react purposefully. So there he's just saying that, you know, in, individuals can um, grow a skin and, mm-hmm. and, a, and a mind and a, and a being and a, a kind of emotional apparatus to respond to these types of things by, mm-hmm. by thinking of certain uh, pathologicals as buffoons. Well, I think that the yeah, that's the the lesson that we can t- that we can take away from it. Mm-hmm. In the context of of him writing, though, it's like that was the kind of natural progression, and that's kind of the natural progression for for people living under that kind of system. It's like at first it is such a shock, and it just kind of like really 
throws you for a loop, if that's the right phrase. Like it really, it takes you off guard and um, it is traumatic, traumatic. And then over the years, it's like it happens so often and so repeatedly that by the time, you know, 20 years later, it's just like, yeah, you yeah. Just, yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, we get it. You know, we know, we know what you're all about. Yeah. And uh, um, did you want to say something else about that? Well, uh, I could read a little more from it, but, um, you know, you mentioned Solzhenitsyn a little earlier. Uh, well, just wait, maybe finish that quote. Where did you end off on that one? Um, his answers are usually well thought out strategies issued from the position of a normal person's superiority and often laced with ridicule. When man can look suffering and even death in the eye with the required calm, a dangerous weapon falls out of the ruler's hands. Right. We have to understand that this process of immunization is not merely a result of the above described increase in practical knowledge of the macrosocial phenomenon. It is the effect of a many-layered gradual process of growth and knowledge, familiarization with the phenomenon, creation of the appropriate reactive habits, and self-control with an overall conception and moral principles being worked out in the meantime. After several years, the same stimuli which formerly caused chilly spiritual impotence or mental paralysis now provoke the desire to gargle with something strong so as to get rid of the filth, mm -hmm. which is great. <laughs> and then he gives right after that, mm -hmm. he tells you know, a little story of, of his own life and how he was arrested for the first time in 1951. And basically, you know, they, he, was, uh, he wasn't given water for several days and he was tortured and you know basically he says they could they could do whatever they wanted with him and it basically like his mind just shut off he he was confused he couldn't even remember while he was in prison he couldn't even even remember the event that got him into prison and didn't even realize that it, it had been a manufactured event like they'd basically just you know played a trick on him um um like they'd entrapped him in some way might have just been a, a a minor way but then 17 years later when he was arrested for the final time in 1968 he was, well, it's a, good, it's a good little bit, so I'm going to read it. So, when I was arrested for the last time in 1968, I was interrogated by five fierce-looking secu security functionaries. At one particular moment, after thinking through their predicted reactions, I let my gaze take in each face sequentially with great attentiveness. The most important one asked me, what's on your mind, Buster, staring at us like that? I answered without any fear of consequences. I'm just wondering why so many of the gentlemen in your line of work end up in a psychiatric hospital. They were taken aback for a while, whereupon the same man exclaimed, Because it's, j it's such damned horrible work. Lobachevsky responds, I am of the opinion that it is just the contrary. Then he's taken back to the cell. So then three, three days later, he has the opportuni opportunity to talk to the same guy, and the guy's much more respectful for him. And, you know, takes him out, and they let him go, and he, you know, takes the... The train back to his house and just collapses on his bed and and uh, he says that he just fell asleep um you know he said the world was the world was not quite real yet to him but he fell asleep and then when he awoke he said out loud dear god aren't you supposed to be in charge in this world but the if you just compare the responses it's like he he approached that that last arrest like the guards like in full control of himself yeah and like that that's the like those little moments of heroism and courage that just you know really <laughs> really move you um he empowered like, himself and, yeah and he was able to to look at them with the eyes of a scientist 
and and kind of put on full display his intelligence and and his uh, really his superiority, yeah. and that there was nothing that they could do to break him. Essentially, like he he'd become at that point like um, an integrated like an integrated individual, like you know a, a hero in a sense in that moment mm-hmm. where um, you know he was willing to face torture or death with a with a stern gaze. Right, he wasn't cowering in fear. He's like, well, "Bring it at me!" And he, and like he said, his his response was tinged with ridicule. It's like, "Well, you know, I think you guys just like it. It's not that bad." But the point he was making that he that he points out after that is that it was true that twenty percent of people in those positions, like security guards, um, you know, and torturers, actually did go to to psychiatric hospitals. Like they went mad. Mm-hmm. And he points out is that because a lot of people, well you can't engage in that kind of work if you're even slightly normal without it having a severe, taking a severe toll on, you know, your psyche. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of an extreme example of, of the, the negative effects of, um, of apothocracy on normal people. Maybe, um, did you have something relevant just on that to go to before I get to my next point or do you want me to move I, on? I do. Um, so you mentioned a little earlier, uh, Solzhenitsyn. Mm-hmm. And I've been very slowly reading In the First Circle, uh, one of his great novels, um, because I thought it was—I thought he illustrates a, a terrific example of what it's like for an individual who doesn't have that sort of uh, preparatory knowledge mm-hmm. and 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 work um, on understanding what what's happening to her. So um, this is just a little description. Um, of a young woman who's a grad student and lives in a dormitory in, uh, in Soviet Russia. Um, Musa was writing to aged parents in a remote provincial town. Papa and Mama were still as much in love as newlyweds. Every morning as he left for work, Papa kept looking back and waving to Mama until he turned the corner. And Mama waved to him from the ventilation pane. Their daughter loved them just as dearly as he had gotten into the habit of writing often and describing all her experiences in detail. But now Musa was at a loss for words. Something had happened last Friday evening that for two days now had overshadowed her tireless labor, day in and day out, on Turgenev, the work that was her substitute for all else in life. What she felt was deep disgust, as though she had smeared herself with something obscene that could not be washed away, or concealed, or shown. Something that made existence impossible. What had happened was that on Friday evening when she got back from the library and was getting ready for bed, she had been called into the dormitory's office and told to, quote, step into the next room, please. In the next room sat two men in civilian clothes. They were very polite to begin with and introduced themselves as Nikolai Ivanovich and Sergei Ivanovich. Quite unconcerned that it was so late at night, they kept her there for an hour. Two hours, three hours. They began by asking the names of her roommates and fellow students in the department. Although, of course, they knew them as well as she did. Then, following a leisurely discourse on patriotism, which focused on the patriotic duty of all in the world of learning not to shut themselves up in their own particular subjects, but rather to serve their people with all their resources and in every way possible, Musa saw no need to contradict what they said was absolutely correct. But then the Ivanovich, Ivanovich brothers invited her to assist them, meaning to meet one or the other of them at fixed intervals in the same office or at a site 
where political agitators gathered, or in a club, or perhaps in the university itself, the venue to be arranged, and there to answer specific questions or report in written form what she observed. That was the beginning of a long nightmare. They began talking more and more rudely, yelling at her, addressing her with insulting familiarity. Why are you such a pig-headed fool? Anybody would think we were foreign spies trying to recruit you. She'd be as much used to a foreign spy as a fifth leg to a horse. Then they told her straight out that they wouldn't let her present her thesis. She had only a month or two to go, and the thesis was nearly finished, and that they would ruin her academic career because sniveling ninnies like her were not the sort of scholars the country needed. This frightened her very much. It would be only too easy for them to get her expelled from graduate school. But then they took out a gun, accidentally, pointing it at Musa as it was passed between them. The effect was the opposite of that intended. Her fear vanished. To be expelled from the university with a black mark against her would be worse than dying. The Ivanoviches released her at one in the morning, giving her until the following Tuesday, December 27th, to think things over and first making her a signed statement not to divulge any of this. They assured her that they got to know everything, and that if she told anybody about their conversation or the document she had signed, she would be arrested and imprisoned immediately. But what unlucky chance had the choice fallen on her? Now she was waiting hopelessly for Tuesday, incapable of working, remembering how, to, how so very recently she had no need to think about anything except for Turgenev when she had no oppressive weight on her, but had stupidly failed to realize how lucky she was. So there's a lot going on in those few passages. I hope it didn't go on for too long. Um, but uh, certainly it, it, uh, it reflects a lot of the, the kind of shock and, and, um, and difficulties in, uh, in processing such an interview of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I guess she was one to respond in a way that, uh, well, she, she couldn't respond cohesively or coherently to them. She could only just go along with what they had suggested. Uh, but the interesting part of it to me was the effect was the opposite of that intended. Her fear vanished. <clears throat> to be expelled from the university with a black mark against her would be worse than dying. So she, she was still able to maintain some of her value for education, for her aim, for her goal, for her life's work. Um, how, how realistic a thing that is for someone who, who experiences such an interrogation is, is uncertain. But uh, there were certainly a lot of resonances in the passage to some of the things that mm-hmm. Lobachevsky describes. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't, I don't think it's uh, implausible. Like, a, well, I'd even, I'd even speculate that that was a true story. Mm-hmm. Because um, uh, Solzhenitsyn was one of the, you know, of the kind of classical tradition in Russian literature to to only write, well, to write fiction that is to only write fiction that is true, <laughs> which is kind of a, a contradictory statement. But um, it was basically his philosophy to to write real events and real stories in a fictional format and not to like create something like not. He wasn't into um, fantasy. And uh, like just creating scenarios that uh, that weren't grounded in real examples and in, in real life. So, um, yeah, I'd suggest, I, or I'd I'd speculate that he he might have even known a woman just like that 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 happened to. 
And that just goes to show that um, um, that that's also in line with this, yeah some of the things Ponor- that Lobachevsky says. Like um, basically, what pathocrats will do is they will go on fishing expeditions. So that's what the indoctrination classes are. Um, you know, they they go in with the hope of of converting everyone, and they only get a small number. Um, but the the because the the number that they get are the ones that are kind of um, susceptible. And there's only a minority who are susceptible to that kind of, um, to those kind of tactics. So th- maybe they just made a mistake. They thought she'd be susceptible, and uh, probably, um, you know, some people, some people too would go along with it, but they wouldn't like it. Of course, you know, they they, if they had any illusions about the system before, they might be shattered, or, or, um, or. Well, there's just a whole bunch of different reactions to that people can have to that situation, and that's kind of what the book gets into is all the different types of reactions that people have, mm-hmm. um, because they're all different types of people. And um, well, maybe to to move on to some more some more of the points in the uh, in this chapter, the he basically lists some of like the positive and negative responses to this kind of environment. So, like the Maybe I'll do the negative ones first because it's not like, well, he does give the impression that there is a majority of people who kind of reject the system, but it's not that simple. And it's not like everyone is just, everyone kind of like just retains their, their natural aversion to the system and everything goes on as normal. There are some like psychological effects. So for instance, um, there is, there is a, like a general widespread negative effect of like the people who are born in such a system, um, have what he calls like um, a an impoverished personality development as they grow up. So he says that they basically grow up with like a weak, with weak values. Like they um, they have like a, a lack of self respect, like for for their own self, for their own body. Um, brutalization of feelings. So like um, well, basically like strong violent emotions and seeing. Oh, and he, call, he and something he calls like a demonological worldview. I'm not quite sure what he meant by that. Yeah. I think he might have he might have intended more of something like a, a Manichaean worldview, where basically you see the oppressors as evil demons, essentially, like you know, in moralistic terms. So mm-hmm. not necessarily that they that there's an actual demonological worldview because demonology is like you know in in religion in religions it's like the the the, the study and the categorization of like different types of demons and and things like that and how they how they influence people. Of course that that's probably true for a lot of like religious people under pathocracy where they see that like the influence of Satan and things like that. So he might be talking about that, but in more, in more general terms, I think it would be like, um, you know, seeing the, seeing the rulers as just like the incarnation of evil, as opposed to taking the, the, the point of view that he takes as like a scientist looking at things like psychologically and in terms of psychopathology. Well, so you've got like lack of self-respect, brutalization of feelings. Um, but also, um, there's like an adaptation and a resourcefulness. So this would be a kind of positive thing. Um, so even despite these kind of negative, um, like emotional um, effects on people, there is, people do become canny. Like they do become resourceful in such a situation. Like they know how to get by. Mm-hmm. They know how to survive within a system. And of course that might, that will require you to, to do things that, like um, that you wouldn't ordinarily, or you wouldn't otherwise do in a different system that might require like a lot of lying <clears throat> lying and um, 
like your own kind of manipulations to just to get by. But it is a it is a type of adaptation to the system, and and it is survivable, right? So like there is a, a period in pathocracy that he calls the the dissimulative phase, where the, the like the leadership is putting on a show for the world to show that that you know that they're a normal country when really they're not, and when that's happening, you can you can actually get by um, like relatively easily compared to like you know the 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 terror situation at the beginning of the. Um, beginning of the pathocracy. So basically it would have been easier to get by in um, the USSR in like the 60s and 70s than it would have been in like the 20s and 30s. It's just a, a different type of environment um, just given the like the stability of the system that's kind of set in. So one other interesting thing that I found was that he talks about like the children of the pathocrats themselves. So these would be like... Um, um, just you know the kids of the leadership and and people in, in important positions of power and he, he describes how they were like um, basically protected until school age so kind of insulated from the rest of society of normal society but then once they actually went to school that the you know and now for the first time they're they're exposed to normal people mm-hmm. and that these that the normal people actually have a positive effect on the children of pathocrats because for the first time in their life they see that there are decent people mm-hmm. and so while their personalities are like deformed by the you know the fact that they've been they've only really been exposed to to people with personality disorders when they finally um experience real people that has a kind of a, a mitigating effect on on the negative you know, aspects of, yeah. of their development. Yeah, and it's a, it's a point he comes back to a few times in the book, I think. Um, and he experienced it himself, having uh, gone to school and, and suffered the, uh, the attempts of a, particular, a, particular, a particularly pathological professor to indoctrinate him. Um, and so basically what this, this professor would do is sit them down for... Uh, for lectures that were filled with what Lobachevsky would call paramoralisms and um, and just illogical statements that uh, if you had if you had taken any time to examine critically uh, would be proven false. And the thing about it was that you were being pounded with this these ideas that were nonsensical. If you've ever had a, a meeting with a pathological boss, you know you, you might come out of it and, and ask the other. Uh, you know, the other coworkers, do you understand what the heck he just said? Um, but uh, to, to bring it back to his point, there, there's, there's value in seeking out other people and just being able to, uh, just be able to have a, a normal interaction after, um, after such experiences. So, mm-hmm. One of the other negative things is that, um, well, at one point he, he lists, at a different point in the chapter, he he lists the effects of like on this younger on the younger generation. So these are the people born within the system and who like, didn't have an experience of um, society before the imposition of pathocracy. And he says that the younger generation, however, was raised under pathocratic rule and thus succumbs to a greater worldview impoverishment, mm-hmm. reflex rigidification of personality, and domination by habitual structures. Those typical results of the operation of pathological personalities. So again, he's like, so this is analogous to the experience of just a child raised by someone with a personality disorder. They will, like, they do have an impoverished development growing up in those in that situation because their parent isn't normal. Mm-hmm. And 
the way he describes it is that it, it is possible in this situation that, like I said, there's a majority of people that are kind of like um, against the government, aren't in agreement with the government, but they still, some percentage of those people will still have negative like effects on their personality. They don't become psychopaths themselves, but they do um, assimilate certain pathocratic, like psychopathic ideas and, and like pseudo values. And he says this basically leads to neurosis and that the solution um, the solution is basically, as we've kind of said a couple times and alluded to, is basically giving just giving accurate information on the the nature of these phenomena. You know, you can d- basically give um, give a rundown of the effects of pathological personalities on normal people and normal development, and what normal development actually looks like, what normal values are like, and the just the kind of statistical information. And that um, one of the downsides he he says to this is that when uh, from his own personal experience, like giving psychotherapy, that um, once people, um, like once young people like this get that kind of information, they kind of go a bit overboard. Like I said, like because they've they've still got this kind of um, like uh, brutalization of feelings. Like they're still they're still young and a bit over um, aggressive in a sense. Like they're emotional, excitable. Yeah, excitable. So what'll often happen is that they would, um, you know, become reckless. And that's the example I gave of saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. You know, all of a sudden they think, they think, uh, they know something, they think they know something and they, it's like, Oh, I know what you're all about. And it's like, so they'll tell off, you know, uh, you know, someone in a position of authority and then that, you know, they'll regret it afterwards because, uh, you still have to be careful in such a situation. You can't, there's just certain things you can't say in public, certain ways you can't believe, and that's why he says that he had to be very careful in his psychotherapy. He could only allude to certain things. And he gives one example of a, a woman that he was <clears throat> treating who had been a, um, an inmate at a Nazi concentration camp. Mm-hmm. And how um, like she'd survived and she'd go, gone on to like have three children. And um, But when she, when she had children, she like she, the way she behaved to her children was as if she was like an SS guard, like she was just a, a very controlling, domineering parent. And so he kind of worked with her and gave her this kind of information on personality disorders and what they're all like and the statistical information, like I was saying. And so she comes back like at the next time and she's got like a checklist of all these like local political personalities and her diagnoses mm-hmm. of them. Like, uh, and Lobachevsky said that she was mostly correct but he he kind of gave her like a like a shush shush like oh, well don't talk about this don't tell anyone right but uh, you know be careful but just that information like he hadn't even he hadn't even told her anything about that and how like you know these politicians are bad and you got to watch out for them no he'd just given her information to like in the context of her concentration camp experience and she'd made the connection on her own just because she was smart you know and uh yeah and, and better to, to use that information in, in helping herself to rear her children in yeah. a uh, constructive manner yeah um as you were saying some of that i was wondering about you know sometimes you're surrounded by family or friends who uh aren't reading they're they're not um they're not really interested in in the types of things and developments that we're seeing in the world and it's a difficult thing. Uh, it's a difficult thing to to live with uh, with some knowledge uh, of of how horrible um, certain developments are. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, we 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 can take some solace in in the fact that there are a lot of people seeing a lot of the same things and sharing it. 
at least you know in, in the alternative media. Um, something he writes is the specific role of certain individuals during such times is worth pointing out. They participate in the discovery of the nature of this new reality and help others find the right path. They have a normal nature, but experienced an unfortunate childhood being subjected very early to the domination of individuals with various psychological deviations, including pathological egotism and methods of terrorizing others. The new rulership system strikes such people as a large-scale societal multiplication of what they knew from personal experience. From the very outset, such individuals saw this reality much more prosaically, immediately treating the ideology in accordance with the paralogistic stories well known to them, whose purpose was to cloak the bitter reality of their youthful experiences. They soon reached the truth, since the genesis and nature of evil are analogous, irrespective of the social scale in which it appears. So, in lieu of being able to uh, discuss a lot of what it is we're seeing, we can we can look to, um, and I'm thinking of a lot of the articles that we post on Saad Harrison. There are a lot of people who see things pretty much as they are and are calling them out for, even if they don't use the term pathological or, or say that uh, this is the result of a, uh, a government that's on its way to being a pathocracy, even if they don't frame it in quite that way, um, they're still saying, this is not normal. This is not healthy. This mm-hmm. is not constructive. Mm-hmm. This is so far away from our traditions and our norms and our uh, understanding of, of reality that it's okay to be outraged about this and to become aware of it and to share it with other people who may be too young to uh, have lived in a time when, when you know these things would seem outlandish. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is value, even, even if we're... Uh, even if it's in the form of an article, uh, to look at, at these people. There are a lot of dedicated writers and journalists and people who fall outside of the mainstream media who were quite willing to call uh, bullshit on, on so much of the, the things that we see in the world today. Um, and, uh, you know, Jonathan Haidt, uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, these are the guys who are doing it. These are the guys who are coming out and saying to us, um, what you're seeing is not normal. What you're seeing is not healthy. What you're seeing can be compared to uh, the disasters that have befallen other countries. Um, they don't get into psychopaths so much. Uh, they take, a, a, I think, a, a little bit of a distance from that point of view, even if it's come up in, in, um, in some of their talks, especially Peterson. But um, but this is like, and I think Lopez, I forget exactly how he terms it, but at some point he says that there are, it's as though there is a, a kind of a, a, a naturally occurring healthy balance or response. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, let, let's, let's, you know, let's take advantage and, and value what we can see right now uh, before things take a turn for the worse. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's kind of a Cassandra situation like it usually is where you know there are people ringing the alarm bells and uh, no one else really listens. But then again, like one, different, one difference today is the internet. Um, so a guy like Jordan Peterson 
you know, in Soviet Russia, how many people would have heard him, right? Well, he would have been maybe like Solzhenitsyn, right? Um, uh, well, maybe that's not a great example because Solzhenitsyn wasn't really that outspoken before his arrest and before all the experiences that led him to, you know, become like a, you know, a, a big critic of the government. Mm -hmm. But uh, for an individual like that who, um, who go, goes public with a criticism, well, how many people are going to hear it? And, um, you know, what's, what's going to happen to him? Whereas today, um, you know, millions and millions and millions of people can, can hear it and make the connection. And who knows, maybe that can have some kind of, um, you know, prophylactic effect, like Lobachevsky would put it, like some kind of, like maybe that will have a, a positive, um, a positive effect to make the eventual, you know, destruction of Western society um, a bit more improbable. But um, who knows? We'll see about that. Um, I think I want to read a, a couple. More. Well, I'll go on what you just read, that paragraph that, that you read about the specific role of people who have kind of previous experiences with psychop psychopathological individuals. Mm -hmm. He also gives examples of various other groups within normal people that kind of play a role. Because one of the things he says is that as this process of kind of getting accustomed to this form of government, like as that proceeds um, and as society kind of learns different tricks, you have people fall into certain roles. So th those people play an important role. Um, another role that people play is like the people that become expert in this kind of third language. Because he describes the first two languages as one is just the, the normal language that everyone speaks. Second language is the double speak of the politicians, and the party members. So they say one thing and they mean another thing. Now, people um, with people who have uh, experienced this for several years, they grow, grow accustomed to it. They understand the double speak and they learn to speak it themselves. So he says there are two groups actually. The, there's the one group that can totally ape this this language. So you know they can go to, into a party meeting and totally sound as if they're a total like communist party member and get away with everything and you know it, they just sound like one of the club right because they've they totally understand the system uh and the the like the semantics of this double speak mm -hmm. but then there are another there's another group of people that, well th there's a, a more distributed kind of third language that people develop basically ridiculing the double speak so um like not having lived in this situation um i i don't know i don't know that language right um and lobachevsky even points out that you you only understand that language if you lived if you've lived it, and um, that Westerners that come into contact with that kind of third language don't really understand it, and they they kind of create theories on what's going on and like the the social system and the, you know why things are bad that don't really get close to reality because they can't understand this kind of language and they end up producing kind of bad propaganda. But the people that do, I th I think it would be something akin to like the jokes that people would ma that make. Uh, it, it's almost like a form of meme culture, like an early form of meme culture, that um, where you take the language used by the crazy people and you kind of turn it against them. So the whole kind of NPC thing might be a, uh, like analogous to this, where um, <clears throat> or the jokes of you know when you, <laughs> whenever the U.S. invades a new country, you know the, all the jokes about you know democracy bombs and freedom bombs and things like that. Mm -hmm. It's like there's this um, this turning. Um, this kind of subversion of the subversion of language. So, like, first of all, there's the subversion of language that says that you know bombing other countries is bringing them freedom, freedom and democracy. Well, you know, look at Iraq; um, that hasn't worked out very well, or Afghanistan. 
but then you turn that around again and just to point out the absurdity of that language so it's like oh well we're gonna you know how about do you want a little freedom it's like or a little <laughs> democracy and th that's understood as being this kind of like sarcastic sarcasm by the the majority of people so the, they actually develop a language that kind of um pokes fun at the at the system and at the language that the pathocrats themselves use and it becomes a way of kind of interacting with with each other and communicating with each other that kind of brings a, a, a solidarity, like a community feeling to all the people that see the reality of what's going on. So there are those kind of groups. Um, one other thing about like the, the divisions within society, I want to read this, uh, this paragraph from the chapter. So he writes that uh, since those, let's make sure this is the right one. Yeah. Since those, factors subject to the laws of genetics prove decisive, society becomes divided by means of criteria not known before into the adherence of the new rule, the new middle class mentioned above, and the majority opposition. Now just to get into that sentence a bit, um, so he's saying basically there's a division, like a biological division that, that plays out um, between like the people with these um, like personality disorders and the people without them, and then this middle class, which is kind of like um, they can kind of go a little bit both ways. Maybe it's um, maybe they've got some like brain damage or something, but they you know they're they're not totally normal, but they're not um, they don't have like a total personality disorder either, and they kind of create the the the, the middle class like the like say there's like six percent personality disordered people in the in the government. There's maybe like twelve percent of the society that kind of like collaborates essentially. Like basically willing collaborators. That's the middle class he's talking about. And then the majority opposition. Since the properties which cause this new division appear in more or less equal, pro equal proportions within any old social group or level, this new division cuts right through the traditional layers of society. If we treat the former stratification, whose formation was decisively in influenced by the talent factor, as horizontal, the new one should be referred to as vertical. The most instrumental factor in the latter is good basic intelligence, and as we already know, a widely is widely distributed through all social groups. So what he's basically saying, uh, or one way of saying it, is that in a normal society, there are all kinds of divisions within society, right? So you've got class divisions and you know racial and um, political, all these types of divisions in society. What happens in a pathocracy is that all those get split down the middle, kind of. So it no longer becomes, like, this is how it would play out in the U.S. It would, um, right now we've got polarization between the right and the left. What would happen in, when a pathocracy breaks out in the United States, the right and the left would each, within themselves, fragment. And uh, so cut down the middle, you'd have uh, pathologicals in both the right and the left. Mm -hmm. All those individuals would go on to form this, like, social structure, like kind of like at the apex of it, little, each little... Um, power hierarchy, um, individuals from bo both those groups would be distributed into this new power structure. Um, all of the old divisions become kind of meaningless. So it's like you'll get members of the party coming from the poor, from the rich. You'll get them from the left and from the right. You know, women and, and, uh, and, and men. Um, you know, communists and capitalists. Like, it doesn't matter what the previous divisions were. It kind of like, there's a totally new structure that emerges out of the, all of the old structures. And the old structures, like he uses the word talent, well, now we've got a better um, or another way of, um, another, 
Another way of saying that, you know, new words to kind of put that into context, this is what Jordan Peterson's talking about when he talks about um, um, competence. So, like, the normal, in normal human societies, hierarchies form based on competence. So, for example, even like, any field that you choose. So, I like music, so I'm going to go with music. In, in music, you get a, a hierarchy of competence within the musical community, the, the community of musicians. The best musicians tend to get parts, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> tend to, to get jobs. Mm-hmm. And the, so the, uh, an example of, or a way of looking at the kind of perversion of these hierarchies would be no longer does your, your um, position, you know, like your musical position depend on how well you play your instrument. And now depends on whether you support the party or not. And that like the psychological reason for that would be whether, you know, you have a personality deformation or personality uh, d- disorder. So all of a sudden, the people at the top of all of the musical organizations and bands and uh, you know schools are there no longer because they are actually talented, but because of what what we you know what what an outsider would see as political reasons, but what you know a real insider or someone who understands this the 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 situation understands to be a psychological reason. So this this goes through everything, and you get now you have societies structured not on competence. But on this this new like personality disorder dimension, and um, well, that leads to all sorts of kind of uh, things on its um, on its own. But you kind of get the idea that those old hierarchies n- are no longer relevant. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the effects of this that he points out is that um, you know after all these years, I mentioned earlier this idea of solidarity. Um, he points out that. All those old divisions, like let's say you had different economic beliefs, political beliefs, different like leaning political leanings, or um, you know things like that. Let me see if I've got this written down. Yeah, so econ- um, economics, ideology, politics. So all of these previous, um, all these previous things, dimensions lose their relevance as time goes on. So. Again, bringing back to the example of the U.S. and like a hypothetical scenario, like let's say uh, the, tomorrow the U.S. was a full-blown pathocracy. In 10 or 15 years, you'd get people who were traditionally left and right who are now friends, mm-hmm. who are now helping each other, mm-hmm. who are now looking, at, looking, after, looking out for each other and you know, watching each other's backs. Because it, the, the, they become united because they have more in common than they have with the leadership of the uh, of the government, of the you know the, the rulership at at every level of society, all of these things that are so polarizing to us now. And just think about like the so like the abortion debate or the the migrant deb- debate. All of those things will become irrelevant. All of those things are irrelevant when looked at um, in comparison to things that actually matter, like you know all these dynamics in ponderology. So, in twenty years. You know, basically, people would look back and be like, "Oh man, you know, how could we be so stupid? That that stuff was so trivial mm-hmm. um, in comparison to what we're dealing with now." And that de- so that develops a like a, what Lobachevsky calls like a network of normal people in society where there is a, a, an extreme, like a, a shockingly strong degree of social cohesion among the majority of people. So you'll actually get a majority consensus among the people, and so that that what he calls that biological division is actually very strong. That um, all of the people um, 
essentially band together against the psychopaths. They might not have political power, they might not be able to do anything, but there's this solidarity within them to the point where he says that, um, you know, people help each other out. And you'll, if, if you're in trouble, you, you'll probably get helped out in some way and you might not even know who helped you right. because people are looking out, watching each other's backs, mm-hmm. right, as I said. And he said that um, now if you get in trouble based on, like, and it's your own fault, like you did something stupid and you get caught, you know, you'll be called out from it, called out for it from from your peers, but they'll still help you. You know, it might be like, well, you really screwed up. You know, you shouldn't like who you got no one to blame but yourself. But you know, help is still offered. So there's that's another one of those unintended positive effects of pathocracy is that it tends to bring people, it bring people together, which is totally um, not what pathocrats expect or want. Mm-hmm. They can't pre- they can't predict that that happens. Um, did you have anything to say on that, or? Well, I, I was just thinking about all the uh, all the science fiction books and movies that anticipate, you know, what the United States would look like after such a development should occur, and um, you know, it, when you were describing all that, Harrison, I was I was wondering how it may come about here, what that uh, what that pathocracy, what banner would it fly under, who would lead it. What are the types of things that would be said that would make all of these uh, political divisions, um, you know, seem uh, seem irrelevant? If indeed it it, mm-hmm. it turns out that way, it could look very different from all of that. Also, um, so yeah, uh, it, it's just you know we we've been uh, creative people, uh, filmmakers, authors have been speculating on, on these types of questions all the time. They don't call it a pathocracy, of course, um, but, but there's usually some, uh, some, um, you know, you, you watch the hunger games or, or handmaid's tale or, or any of these, uh, these visions of, of what a full blown pathocracy looks like. And they each have their own kind of perspective, uh, you know, or, um, or idea of, of what they could look like. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bottom line is a, a lot of people took a lot of care uh, in creating these stories to, um, or Ray Bradbury's uh, Fahrenheit 457. One. Uh, one, Fahrenheit 451, thank you. Um, you know, how many articles do we read that make reference to Orwell's 1984? It's mm-hmm. unbelievable. Uh, because because we were already on the road of double speak. We're already on the road of, uh, of, of this kind of language that you were describing before, um, but also seeing it for what it is. So, yeah. Well, I want to read the paragraph that comes after the one I just read. Even those people who were the object of social injustice in the former system and then bestowed with another system, which allegedly protected them, slowly start criticizing the latter. So, you know, he's talking, uh, uh, well, one example that we could use from history for this would be like the people living in Tsarist Russia, like the oppressed in Tsarist Russia. So then the communist government comes along and presumably it's the, the new communist regime that is protecting them and, you know, it was for them. Even those people start criticizing the new uh, government. Um, even though they, they were forced to join the Pathocratic Party, Many of the former pre-war communists in the author's homeland, Poland, later generally became critical using the most emphatic language. They were first to deny that the ruling system was communist in nature, 
persuasively pointing out the actual differences between the ideology and reality. They tried to inform their comrades in still independent countries of this by letters. Worried by this treason, these comrades transmitted such letters to their local party in those other countries mm -hmm. from where these were returned to the security police of the country of origin. The authors of the letters paid with their lives or with years in prison. No other social group was finally subjected to such stringent police surveillance as they, as were they. So uh, this is a lesson for, you know, political ideologues today. Like whether you're Antifa or, you know, uh, like some white nationalist group that if you, if you really believe in your ideology and what, you know, what your party or what your movement is saying, you're going to be the first to suffer and you're going to suffer the worst because the, the true believers are actually the, you know, the first enemies, the, the first ones to go in the purge and, uh, the brown shirts in uh, Nazi mm -hmm, Germany. Mm -hmm. There's even a great character in the book in the first circle that you read from Ilan, mm -hmm. um, uh, an old communist that's in the, the prison with the main character who, uh, is, Quite a character, but I, first I, I've read that book and I just I really recommend it. It's a it's a great book, and um, maybe just moving on. Well, so I had a comment about that. Like, so these are the kind of the that's not real communism people, in uh, mm -hmm. you know in these communist countries, and the the well the irony is that technically they're correct, um, but they um, well I'll just leave it at that. That's a whole other show I think um, for that topic. But I want to read a couple other things because there's just so many great quotes in this chapter. Um, another paragraph. The world of normal people is always superior to the deviant one whenever constructive activity is needed, whether it be the reconstruction of a devastated country, the area of technology, the organization of economic life, or scientific and medical work. They want to build things, but they can't get much done without us. Quote, Qualified experts are frequently able to make certain demands. Unfortunately, they are just as often only considered qualified until the job has been done, at which point they are eliminated, or they can be eliminated. Once the factory has started up, the experts can leave. Management will be taken over by someone else, incapable of further progress, under whose leadership much of the effort expended will be wasted. So again, this is just an example of the, the lack of a competence hierarchy where talented individuals like are still necessary in a society and nothing can get done without them, but because of the power structure and because of the actual nature of the hierarchy in such a country, that talent is wasted. Like even when it's put to good use, it gets wasted. Um, yeah. Oh, I wanted to give one example of the, the old communists that Lobachevsky gives. So um, I'll, maybe I'll just read that one bit that comes after the part I read about them being under the most stringent police surveillance. Regardless of whatever our evaluation of communist ideology or the parties might be, we are presumably justified in believing that the old communists were quite competent to, to distinguish what was and what was not in, accord, in accordance with their ideology and beliefs. Their highly emphatic statements on the subject, <clears throat> quite popular among Poland's old communist circles, are impressive or even persuasive. And he gives an example of one of these quotes. This is how the old communists was, uh, res, um, referred to the party, the people in charge. A horde of sons of bitches who climbed up the feeding trough. Sorry, a, a horde of sons of bitches who climbed up to the feeding trough upon the backs of the working class. Because of the operational language used therein, however, we must designate them as overly moralizing interpretations not in keeping with the character of this work. 
At the same time, we must admit that the majority of Poland's pre-war communists were not psychopaths. Maybe, um, well, it, j yeah. just to get back to Russia, uh, I mean, it, Russia, Soviet Russia, wasn't in its true form um, communist, uh, exactly. It, it, it purported to be in support of the workers and, and a kind of egalitarian society. But as we now know, it was just a full-blown pathocracy. Mm -hmm. It was all about uh, people, you know, those who had it in them to, uh, to, to climb the, you know, the ladder to the feeding trough and, you know, supporting the party and, and becoming a, an apparatchik. And most of the rest of the people lived fairly, uh, fairly difficult lives um, and, and suffered the consequences of being told that they were uh, leading the good righteous life but, in, but had their, their evidence, you know, right in front of them. Uh, an incredible amount of corruption and, and self-serving behavior on the, on the part of the politicians who, uh, who took their direction from the very top. Mm -hmm. A couple more quotes before we end the show today. The necessity for constant mental effort, so crucial for finding some tolerable way of life, not totally bereft of moral sense within such a deviant reality, causes the development of realistic perception, especially in the area of socio-psychological socio phenomena. Protecting one's mind from the effects of paralogistic propaganda, as well as one's personality from the influence of paramoralisms and the other techniques already described, sharpens controlled thinking processes and the ability to discern these phenomena. Such training is also a special kind of common man's university. So this is in the context of Lobachevsky basically saying that you might, you know, many people in the West might think that culture and intellectual life um, is stunted under pathocracy because of the, like the, the widespread censorship, you know, the lack of access to um, you know, scientific material and the lack of freedom to pursue certain, like, um, certain scientific um, quests, essentially. But that's not actually the case. He's, he's arguing that under such a, an environment, you act, you're actually forced to think even harder. And, um, and that, the, that, that such a society is actually in a, in a good place to recreate, to, to, to create a new society, essentially, to, to renew their own society when given the opportunity. That all the material is there. They haven't actually lost any of their abilities. In fact, they've been strengthened. Their values have been strengthened. Their you know cognitive abilities have been strengthened. They're actually in a, in a much better place to create a, a good society um, than otherwise. Than like the this is than like what we find ourselves in of a bunch of complacent people living in a society that's kind of like decaying and that the the institutions are um, decaying and stagnating and there's just so much like you know minor and and big corruption and waste and um, stupidity like. Um, people who have actually suffered a lot are in a much better position to create a system that actually works. Mm. And this is one of the the points he makes about, well, one of the warnings he gives about, uh, well, that should have been taken. You know, ideally this book would have been published widespread in like the 80s and um, people would have read it, but that didn't happen. So this remember, he's writing this in 1984. And so he writes um, at the very end of this chapter, I want to read these last three short paragraphs. Those whose attitudes are more penetrating and balanced see the original ideology as it was before its caricaturization by the polarization process, 
as the most practical basis for effecting society's aims. So basically, um, what he's saying there is that, like, let's say the old communists, for instance, um, they actually um, they see that the they see that those old ideals as actually a good. Or maybe let me. Am I reading that correctly? Just wait. Yeah, they see that as like the basis for actually going through following through with society. Like, let's go back to the original ideas of this social system and actually put them into practice. And um, so he continues, certain modifications would endow this ideology with a more mature form, more in keeping with the demands of the present times. It could thereupon serve as the foundation for a process of evolution, or rather transformation, Mm -hmm. into a socioeconomic system capable of adequate functioning. Mm This, uh, the author, so himself, Lobachevsky's convictions are somewhat different. Grave difficulties could be caused by outside pressure aiming at the introduction of an economic system which has lost its historically conditioned roots in such a country. People who have long had to live in the strange world of this divergence are therefore hard to understand for someone who has fortunately avoided that fate. Let us refrain from imposing imaginings upon them which are only meaningful within the world of normal man's governments. Let us not pigeonhole them into any political doctrines which are often quite unlike the reality they are familiar with. Let us welcome them with feelings of human solidarity, reciprocal respect, and a greater trust in in their normal human nature and their reason. Now, um, Russia in the 90s did not follow this advice. This is where I'm going with that. Yeah. Like... Ideally, like um, like Putin often says, like one of the greatest tragedies in, uh, for Russia in, in recent years was the the collapse of the Soviet Union. Not only because they lost so many so much territory and so many people, and uh, you know all the like minor, relatively minor civil wars that started as a result in all of these like ex-Soviet states. Um, you know, and the problem of refugees, like all of a sudden these people are stateless. You have all these Russians living in other countries that are no longer you know they're no longer tied to their country um and that led to all kinds of um like civil conflicts all over the periphery but you had westerners who think who thought they knew what they were doing thought they knew what the best uh prescription for russian society was totally reinventing the economic system imposing a new economic system that was Mm -hmm. a total disaster where really the approach to take would have been like what Lobachevsky's talking about here, an evolutionary approach where you keep the existing system. Yes. This is the conservative approach. You keep the existing system and you transform it. You keep what works and then you slowly introduce new things and start doing things slightly differently, but yeah. you don't just totally restart the system. Um, that's as bad, as, like, well, it's almost as bad as a revolution. Um, well, in some ways it is as bad. Like there millions of Russians died in the 90s because of this. It was a, a total like crapshoot. It was like bad news, like uh, just read Grand Deception by Alex Craner, and he's got all the details. Like, um, so again, this comes from not understanding what actually, well, not understanding what life was like and the specific, um, like psychological realities of a of a situation like this. Mm-hmm. Just the arrogance of like yes. the the Westerners to to look at this situation and assuming they didn't have. Uh, malevolent intentions and some of them did I, I assume but there were others that didn't that were just had nothing but goodwill like you know good intentions to look at that situation and be arrogant enough to think oh well i know how to fix that well we just have to introduce an american style you know economy and government and you know adapt it slightly for the russian mentality or whatever and it doesn't work 
Like that will never work. Yeah, no, it, it's an excellent example. It, it came to mind uh, for me as well. And I remember, I specifically remember uh, Gorbachev, uh, who in the late 90s was the premier. Um, was it the premier or the, um, uh, I forget what his, what his exact uh, designation was, but he was saying exactly that. Uh, and this was, and for a brief time, he was power sharing with Boris Yeltsin, who later uh, became not only a horrible drunkard, but opened the floodgates to uh, all of this kind of um, intervention and, and economic advice and basically uh, empowerment of not only the oligarchs, but uh, of, of Western economic interests and, and political interests. Uh, so that, that Putin would come in, take the reins, basically, uh, the very last thing Yeltsin did shortly before he died was to, to kind of pass off the baton to Putin wisely um, so, so that Putin would come in and do what he did um, and turn everything around and try to revitalize everything that was working or, or should have been working uh, and to um, basically uh, revise um, a lot of the, the kind of political uh, and social policy of Russia to do that was just an incredible, I mean, it, it can't be understated what a, what a turnaround it's been. Um, Russia was for all intents and purposes in the palm of, of Western interests. Uh, and that, that it was lost to them, that it, that it's empowered itself, uh, that it's built on the old and, and even come to comment on, how bad Soviet Russia was for so many people, because Putin is a was a big fan of Solzhenitsyn. Uh, it's just a huge <laughs> disappointment and uh, and loss for those interests that would have Russia be this you know, vassal, uh, gigantic vassal state in the way that so many other Asian and, and European countries have have come to uh, become. Mm -hmm. Well, with that said, do you have any? Other things you wanted to comment on, Elad? Uh, no, I, I think that that covered it pretty well, ex except maybe just to say that um, it's good to be thinking on these things. Um, you know, when, when we think of protection from psychopaths, we don't usually think of it in terms of a macro-social thing to defend against, but um, it's a good way to conceive of it. It's, it's one of the great things about the book. And uh, for anybody who hasn't read it yet, it's a little dense at some places, um, but it's well worth the effort. And, uh, if you can, if you can read it with current events in mind and make connections and connect the dots in, in your own way, uh, you'll get a heck of a lot out of it. All right. That said, thanks everyone for tuning in. Tune in tomorrow for newsreel, the show and Friday health and wellness, and we'll see you next week. Bye everyone. Bye -bye. Take care. Bye.